Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care. Enjoy the podcast. When would it have been? Uh, was it Friday? I mean, it was only Thursday or Friday, I think, last week when we had a the launch of this group. And since then, there's been a huge amount of attention drawn to it. We've had a, a sort of a rival group set up uh, <laughs> that uh, sort of is campaigning for different things or slightly different things when it comes to Labour's education policy announcement. This all stemmed from a document that was produced by Labour. David Blunkett was the main writer of it, I think. Um, And it suggested about 13 or 14 points uh, that were recommended by Labour. Or I say recommended by Labour. It was a pre-policy document. So in other words recommended to Keir Starmer by David Blunkett uh, around what should what education policy for Labour should be. Uh, things within the recommendations were like, uh, so we had, I mean, the big one that sort of got the headlines was on teacher sabbaticals, uh, giving teachers a sabbatical for every five years of service for six months was one of the big ones that got a lot of attention. But there were lots of others. Uh, things focusing around curriculum and things focusing around coding, uh, things focusing around creativity, uh, skills, uh, lots of other things. I've got Adam on the line now. Adam, if you want to unmute yourself, just bottom left and and hello. Hi, Tom. You're right. I tried to connect on my laptop, but it seems to be a phone. No, nope. it's got to be phones only, mate. It's got to yeah. be phones only. Phones is the way. No, um, right. How are you doing this evening? Are you okay? Yeah, really good, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty knackered after my first day back, um, after a wonderful two weeks off. Um, so I was slightly falling asleep on the train home, but I've perked up. And I've had a cup of tea, so... <laughs> Good news. Well, I want to ask you all about this sort of um, group you've set up. Yeah. Because oh, it's got it's got it's been big news, hasn't it? Well, it has... I, bet you, I bet you didn't. I bet you didn't expect it to go the way it's gone. <laughs> I didn't know. I honestly was like when we got past 50 followers on the account, I was like, yes, brilliant. 50 followers. This is this is it. Um, so I yeah i didn't expect that and i didn't expect the sort of backlash there's been to it either i guess i was quite naive thinking like you know it's, it's pretty niche isn't it i mean to be talking about education policy in the middle of the october half term um but i've been absolutely just like loving the fact that teachers are, are as interested in this as i am because i'm one of the I, you know i always caveat it with god i'm a bloody nerd about this um you know thinking that no one else would be interested but obviously it's our job isn't it it's our it's our um day-to-day bread and butter and we're in an um i don't want to call it an industry a sector that's quite heavily influenced by like central government policy in a way that obviously the private sector isn't and even some elements of the public sector aren't so much so yeah it's been a really really interesting uh i suppose it's only really been a week yeah and, and obviously already, just to fill people in who might be listening to this as a podcast or whatever, yeah. um, Adam, Adam set up a group called uh, the Campaign for Evidence-Informed Teaching on the back of a report by uh, David Blunkett and others that was recommending labour education policy. Now, what was it, Adam, about this report 
that wound you up? Because something must have really wound you up to make you want to set up this group. Yeah, I think that's probably the right term for it, actually, is wound up. Um, it was it was two sort of major things, really. It was, um, firstly, it was seeing uh, knowledge-rich teaching being de- described as passive. And I, th- I think it was only in passing. It wasn't like a substantive um, part of the report. And I think that was part of sort of Lord Blunkett's response to this was, you know, we've picked quite a small part of the report in our open letter to be critical of, um, which is fair enough. And, and um, you know, there are other really good things in the report. Uh, but that really that really wound me up because, you know, fundamentally, I don't believe that. I don't believe that um, the sort of reforms to teaching, pedagogy, curriculum are in, have have made it more passive. Um, and then secondly was also the idea that um, a sort of seen like industry uh, should be having more of a say in setting the curriculum. Um, and now I'm a primary school teacher and I just fundamentally don't believe that, that we, that the purpose of primary education is so that, you know, BAE systems has uh, enough skilled uh, front end developers in, in 15 years time. Um, I think there's a wider, a much wider, a much broader purpose for education than that. And if you look at the the report, you know, in in defence of the people who wrote it, it's not an it's not a school report, a schools report. It's not even really an education report. It's a skills report. That's that's what it was commissioned as, um, and that was sort of the the defence that we got from Lord Blunkett, and that's completely fair enough um, to say that. But it was just the fact that um, <laughs> you know, going back in time slightly to bring the skills debate into the curriculum debate it just felt um a bit antagonistic and i felt a bit uh yeah it just didn't really reflect what's been happening in education in the last kind of um well i guess since since david blunkett's been education secretary in 2001 so yeah i mean obviously there was a there was sort of a i mean what what in this letter let's let's talk about this open letter you Mm. wrote as part of this group you set up the group Obviously, you've got, you've got members in the group, you've got supporters in the group and whatever. And then you obviously produce this sort of open letter. Yeah. So what, what are the things in this open letter that you want? Just, I mean, it, it's addressing those points that I just said. So firstly, I fundamentally believe, and I think most people who join our group would believe, that a knowledge-rich curriculum is an entitlement for, like, for all students. We know that kids who go to... Oh, whether it's it could be your big names, it could be your Eton's, or it could just be you know Dartford Grammar School. Kids there are always going to get a knowledge-rich curriculum. They're always going to get a culturally rich curriculum, uh, and I actually believe it's an entitlement of all children across the country, every school, every uh, background, to the kind of knowledge that is in that curriculum. So that was a big part of it. That that's an entitlement, um, and I suppose that's the sort of values thing more than an evidence thing um another big point was that we believe um that it's not necessarily teachers job uh, or schools jobs even um certainly uh, to 16 to train people for industry um that schools have an educational purpose that an educational purpose is not um necessarily always aligned with an economic purpose uh that was a big part of it um and then also to say that you know there didn't seem to be any meaningful interaction between the the committee that wrote the report which i think had you know an entrepreneur and a a university registrar uh, and someone else involved um and teachers 
and we just weren't included in the conversation. And so when we 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 called ourselves the the campaign for evidence informed teaching, uh, and we didn't have a, a huge conversation about naming because I think that could have gone on for weeks and weeks trying to come up with a name. But we didn't just when we said evidence informed, we didn't just mean like you know research informed, although that's an important part of it. We mean evidence in terms of like teachers' lived experience. So we're the people who experience the hard end of of education policy. And so I really think any meaningful policy has to include like the voices of of teachers in the classroom in order to be um, in any way sort of effective or uh, inclusive, because otherwise you're just going to end up not only rubbing people the wrong way, but but having bad policy as well. And that's what we want to avoid is is bad policy. I've seen I mean, let's go through some of the sort of um, criticisms of the of uh, that have arisen. I know one of the first ones was one of the first questions that was asked was, how are you funded? Um, (laughs) Does Elon Musk fund you, Adam? Who who is the funding behind you? Um, The funding behind me, I mean, the funding behind me is uh, is me. Uh, (laughs) You know, what what have our outgoings been so far that I had to buy a coffee in Starbucks whilst I was (laughs) writing the report? I loved who funded it. I'd I'd love to know who they think funded it. That would be amazing just to sort of see. Um, but no, I mean, there's behind that there is a more sort of like genuine criticism, which was like, yeah, um, you know, people do believe that because some of the ideas that that I'm not saying we all hold, but because some of them have been put forward by or not even put forth, I don't know, because basically the the sort of revolution in education towards this more evidence informed. Um, state has occurred under a conservative government or at least under a coalition and then a conservative government and that you know you you could argue that a lot of these reforms have been both top down and bottom up that some of them are top down some of them are bottom up and when they're top down they are coming from a conservative department for education and I, I quite I do sort of understand where people are coming from when they say oh well then you are astroturf you must be some sort of right-wing organization masquerading as as left-wing and i can understand that because i used to be quite entrenched in a sort of quite far left political view myself and i think before teaching i probably might even have been one of those people saying like oh you 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 are putting forward tory policies um but the reality of it is completely different isn't it i mean the reality of it is a lot more prosaic and boring uh that (laughs) that that there aren't really such things as like conservative education policies and labor education policies there are only effective and ineffective policies there are only policies which are um evidence informed or policies which are not um there are only policies i mean one question one question i would ask you adam is the the phrase evidence informed Mm. um i mean my my series of questions i guess on that would be whose evidence yeah how do we know the evidence is reliable is education research reliable i mean i know dylan william has written a lot about how unreliable <coughs> um of evidence in education is yeah. so my question would be when we, when we see this phrase evidence informed there would be many who would argue whose evidence who decides the evidence and then to, mm. to kind of present that as infallible like oh it's evidence informed so you can't argue with it yeah um sort of do you, do you see that argument oh yeah 100 percent. and i completely i almost 
agree with it. When we say evidence informed, we don't mean research informed, or at least we don't mean just solely research informed. Yeah. So I agree that education research is often deeply flawed. Uh, I don't know whether you can, you know, people will always take singular pieces of research and say, yeah, you know, this is this fully backs up my pre-existing opinion, or this completely. I would say fairly few people have ever been really have their opinions fundamentally shifted yeah. by a piece of e- educational research. What really shifted my opinion, because I started out as quite a, what you might call progressive teacher, was meta-analyses and books by people who brought together huge swathes of research that seem to to pick out trends from that research. So Daisy Christodoulou's book is, is often cited on um, Kieran Mackle's amazing podcast um uh, thinking deeply about primary education there's always you know people are talking about w- what was their lightning moment that sort of put them on the the pedagogical track that they're on that daisy christodoulou book for a lot of people is that that moment and it was for me and that's different to just a singular piece of research that's a, that's trends that's you know that's change over time and when we talk about evidence informed like i say what we're not i'm not particularly interested in necessarily the latest piece of educational research as it stands singularly and we can talk maybe about you know the replication crisis and how research generally isn't (laughs) singular pieces of research aren't that interesting when you look at how they're commissioned and what what does get published and what doesn't what i'm interested in is what happens when teachers um make changes in their classroom when teachers um have experience what it's like to implement certain bits of policy certain bits of curriculum try different pedagogical approaches um and then what happens when those teachers get together and talk about it which is essentially what what edu twitter for the last 10 years have been and i heard you talking earlier about you know the tes forums before that and things this is really what i mean by evidence informed it's a much broader base of evidence than singular pieces of educational research i'm not saying they're not valuable because they are and again if you listen to to kieran mackle's podcast you hear people talk really passionately about singular pieces of research but ultimately it's a much broader evidence base that i think we're talking about and so that's why it's important to talk to teachers because we're the people who are doing it every day and really the difference now or not the difference but perhaps the benefit now is that we are ourselves more evidence informed so there's more sharing of information through things like you know impact magazine or or whatever it is or or twitter blogs um it just seems like the profession is a lot more a lot better at professional sharing than maybe it has been in the past oh i i I agree with that i think the criticism would be that the, the phrase evidence informed or research informed has come to be characterized by certain pedagogical approaches yeah. that that many others would not only argue against based on their own experiences mm. but argue against perhaps with some other meta studies or or pieces of research let's say maybe not meta studies but yeah. pieces of research um i mean so fair I think- enough look fair enough completely i'm a partisan right I believe in a particular way of teaching is um, is better, okay? And I have a values base for that. So things like, yeah. you know, this entitlement to knowledge, things like my own personal experience of schooling, things like 
um, where where kids end up and what enables social mobility and all these reasons for why I think this particular um, uh, and we can use the term I'm not really afraid of the term traditionalist approach to education is really powerful and then I also have an evidence base for it that I could point you to now we've been having a conversation in our group about where is the evidence that a knowledge-rich curriculum is inherently better than a skills-based curriculum and you know what there there really isn't is that what formal just, just to pause there just to pause there yeah. Adam, on on the knowledge-rich curriculum point because I know you've mentioned it a few times is this is this sort of because in this report point two said all schools should follow a reformed, creative and forward looking curriculum. Are you are you kind of seeing that as the opposite to a knowledge rich curriculum? Not necessarily, because um, I, I don't think you'd really speak to anyone. I mean, as with anything, there's always more nuance than two sort of edge positions would imply. What if you that's not really the, the part of the report that deals with knowledge rich education. that I think we had. An issue yeah. It was more where it describes it as passive and this idea that. Yeah. Um, that children just receive knowledge, which, you know, if you've ever been in a lesson uh, which is genuinely knowledge-rich and not just sort of knowledge-heavy pub quiz curriculum, but, like, genuinely kids are, are utilising knowledge in a way that, you know, almost playing with it or debasing it, whatever it is, they're, 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 you, kids have a sort of fluency in those kind of surroundings that they might not have if they were taught using a different curriculum. Um and that's really, and again, it, and I think you know Michael Young as well with powerful knowledge and this idea that that knowledge can be not a tool for oppression, but a tool for people to um, achieve social mobility and to, um, to 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 be able to. I I use the phrase. I think it appears in the letter as well to be able to engage in a a national conversation. You know, if you go and read a newspaper or um, listen to uh, the Today programme or something like that, then I think if you've had a knowledge-rich education, you're able to understand those things better. Kind of like I didn't have a knowledge-rich education. I grew up, uh, I went to school in sort of 2003 to 2007 at the sort of peak of whatever it was that became before what we do now. And, um, and I... I had this real neurosis when I left school that I just didn't feel, I didn't feel educated. I felt stupid. Um, I didn't go to university straight away. I, I didn't go to university until my mid twenties. And I spent years and years sort of really like almost like cramming in my early twenties to learn about things that I felt like, you know, I needed to be part of a, an intellectual conversation that I was kind of excluded from like Shakespeare or classical music or uh, basic geography or whatever it was. I didn't feel my, my school really, prepared me for and i i would be really reluctant to deny children that what i consider to be like a i don't know it's probably a bit archaic phrasing but to be almost like a national birthright to a certain sort of set of shared uh cultural knowledge so i mean with with regards to your personal pedagogy yeah, um, yeah. as a teacher do you sort of do consistently the same things every single lesson i mean do you do you like how 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 would you describe your own pedagogy um that's a really interesting question uh my own personal pedagogy it's i mean i started out as a secondary school teacher and i would say when i taught for example gcse um it was pretty consistent and that was actually quite freeing for me um you know and to be able to have a consistent pattern to each lesson and it allowed me to sort of spend more time thinking about the knowledge and I remember being really positive about that and feeling like it, I had more control over what I was doing. And now I'm a primary school teacher. Um, 
you know, I guess there is a similar approach each lesson, but I, I don't, I feel like there's, I don't know, I wish people could just come and sort of watch what it's like to, to teach for a day in primary, because it is, it's a really remarkable job. And like to say that there's a certain pedagogy isn't necessarily true. There's a certain um, methodology behind like the planning that goes behind it. So sequencing, things like that, and the kind of content that we use and how we explicitly teach vocabulary. But to say that there's a certain traditionalist pedagogy in primary is probably not quite so true as it is for secondary, because I think we still use... Um, there's less of a distinction between like one end of that spectrum and the other in primary than there is between one end of the spectrum and the other in secondary. So it, does that make sense that it's, it's less sort of clear cut uh, pedagogically, but the, the curriculum difference might still be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, w- what did your letter say about Ofsted? Cause I know one of the sort of um, recommendations in the original report was a national review of Ofsted to ensure that the inspection and accountability regime makes the most positive and constructive contribution possible to the education system as a whole. What are your group's thoughts on this and on Ofsted in general? Our group's thoughts on this would be hugely wildly varied and thus not represented in the letter. And, um, you know, what we... I've tried to bring together a group of people with a broad uh, agreement on, like, pedagogy and curriculum and um, skills and these things. I I wouldn't ever, like, talk about um, Ofsted because it's not really within our remit. And I think we probably have people in our group who who would happily abolish Ofsted. We have people in our group who would reform Ofsted. And we have people in our group who might say that Ofsted should continue as it is at the moment, but with some minor reforms. So I couldn't talk from the group's point of view about about Ofsted really yeah yeah and and this idea of kind of multimodal assessment so Hmm. this idea that sort of the the not the replacement of written exams but the idea that other forms of assessment could contribute towards a you know uh, an assessment grade for a student so I guess like in old terms this would be sort of a return to coursework or at least something a little bit similar yeah so what what are your thoughts on that um, that it's uh, well. I mean, we have to say first off because I got told off for this by um, by Michael Merrick uh, earlier this week that we're talking about secondary assessment here, not primary assessment, because there are forms of teacher assessment in primary already. Yeah. Um, I think that it's a it's not a great idea because we have two sort of tests that we put forward in our um, position paper, which is a more sort of positive kind of these are the things that we would we would say that Labour should focus on. And we say, well, number one, does this reform to assessment, whatever reform it might be, does it um, positively impact on teacher workload and well-being? And a return to coursework wouldn't, um, especially if it was teacher assessed. And return to, you know, multimodal assessment and, or sorry, modular assessment. I mean, you could argue that probably wouldn't have a huge impact on teacher well-being. And number two is, is it does it make the system demonstrably fairer? can we point to the system and say this levels the playing field even more and coursework i don't think it does i don't see i've never seen any evidence to say that it does and you know just anecdotally i don't uh, i think that coursework is the kind of schools can have a lot more impact over as opposed to you know children sat in an exam hall writing exam answers um so those are the two tests that we would put forward does this assessment positively or negatively or neutrally impact teacher well-being and, and welfare 
and does it like demonstrably make things fairer because every time you reform the assessment system even every time you reform the assessment system it it creates huge churn in education so if you suddenly bring back modular reforms every textbook and scheme of work that teachers have used for years and and <clears throat> everything that, that that people have been been doing in, in a gcse classroom uh, you know since the last set of gcse reforms in 2000 whatever it was 14 15 16 uh has to go out of the window and start again and that's people are just sick of that quite understandably so and we've got sort of actually if you look back now completely disregarding covid because that's been one of the biggest most enormous periods of of um disruption but it just did purely in terms of like curriculum and what is sort of brought down from on high since the 2014 curriculum reforms and since the latest set of gcse reforms things have been relatively quiet on that front we haven't had a huge set of reforms of assessment or curriculum and it's probably been good for us as a profession to have a little bit of a lull, mostly because we've been firefighting on the COVID front for two solid years. But yeah, it's it's been interesting that we haven't had those big, huge curriculum reforms. Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been some interesting sort of comments on on your letter, and obviously this has led to a sort of another group being set up, which is called the Educators Alliance. Yeah. Have you kind of had chance to look at what they've had to say? I know that you've tweeted about it saying um thanks very much to the the consultants and the and the and the other list of people involved um with it um was that a pointed criticism of them or was it just a coincidence <laughs> was it a point of criticism uh yeah do you know what sure it was a bit of a point of criticism yeah i'm not you know i'm transparent about what i believe um as far as i know every member of our group which is uh, i think about 165 at the moment is um i'm not oh god i know there's been a lot of debate today about it but i think they would all call themselves teachers and they would all say that they are currently classroom teachers um yeah. whereas tea they like it do, they, there are teachers involved i think about half the signatories of their letter are practicing teachers and that's brilliant and why should consultants and Ofsted inspectors and academics also have a voice in the education debate but to me the teacher's voice should be privileged because we're the ones sitting there doing this day to day we're the ones when when there's a policy change it filters through mat leadership senior leadership into our classrooms whereas when there's a policy change you know maybe someone on ITT has to review their program and it goes through that whole process but you know it's a point of criticism in that sense that we are and and quite explicitly so teacher-led and that that what we say is informed by everyday practice and i mean like literally like i was in a classroom six hours ago that kind of practice so yeah it it was pointed it was pointed but that said um i fully support their existence i'm glad they exist actually one of the things that really shocked me so i had a uh, went out for a lovely coffee with a, a new friend of mine who's um, involved in education, and that we were sort of out in Leon C when this letter drops, and we read it, and we were like, "Oh, this is pretty reasonable stuff, actually. Like, there's nothing here that we massively disagree with." Um, and I guess my mate, uh, if I'm going to be a little bit, uh, my only sort of criticism was that I got I caught a lot of flack from people who were saying like, "Oh, why are you outwardly criticising Labour? Like, surely you don't want." the conservatives to win if you criticize labor's education policy then aren't you implicitly saying that you would vote conservative well obviously not no and also two years out from an election it's literally the best possible time to be um 
trying to work with Labour to improve their policy. So their point was like, you shouldn't be saying this out loud. You shouldn't be opposing it out loud. And then some of those same people <laughs> signed this letter that, that appeared three days later that, that does criticise some elements of the report, particularly this irritating figure that won't die about, I think it's 65% of jobs, blah, 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 won't, or kids will be doing jobs that don't currently exist. Um, so I guess that was, yes, it was pointed. And yes, I was a little bit annoyed by the hypocrisy of it. But, you know, it's edgy twister. People are always going to wind you off, aren't they? That's the joy. <laughs> That's the joy of it. So. I mean, just just reading, like, obviously there was, there was a lot, there's been a huge amount of reaction. I, I'm going to ask you in a minute as well, Adam, about what David Blunkett said to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we come on to that, uh, just a few more bits of reaction. So, uh, uh, Hamish Smith on Twitter, at Hamish Smith, mm. tweeted, Hey, UK Labour, not every teacher on, on Twitter is scared of a return to a more creative way of teaching. In fact, some of us are pretty pleased. And I know there were further comments on the back of that, talking about the difference between primary teaching and secondary teaching. Now, I know you have trans- transitioned into primary teaching. So, and you mentioned sort of, um, you know, direct instruction, knowledge-rich curriculum and all those things. Do, do you think there is a difference between primary and secondary when it comes to this sort of, uh, the, the sort of, um, if you like, the the pillars of this evidence-informed approach and movement? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I completely agree. Hamish Smith is always making the, the, the point that um, primary is, is um, unique and separate and different from um, uh, different from se- secondary, and that's true. But the, children don't magically transform when they transition from year six to year seven, right? So I can totally buy your point that EYFS is really a different context to year seven, but it's also a really different context to year four. So it's not necessarily the case that um, primary and secondary are a binary uh, understanding of education. It's much more the case that we should do things that are age appropriate. And, you know, if you look at who's in this room right now and who's been actually it's quite reflective of who's been involved in the group. There's loads of amazing primary teachers here. You know, Shannon, Andrew Percival's here, uh, Chris yeah. Such, Neil, um, Elliot Morgan. Uh, they're all here yeah. and they're all involved in this conversation as primary school teachers. And what slightly annoys me is there's a double um, criticism that's made of secondary teachers that they both simultaneously are saying things that are not relevant to primary schools and also dominating the debate on sort of general curriculum or general pedagogy and I don't think that's true and I think again to credit Kieran Mackle's podcast which is kind of a group that we've crystallised around Right, can I, can I just make sure because you mentioned it three times now there are other <laughs> podcasts available are there? Um, so, yep, there's lots out there, like Teachers Talk Radio and others that are also very, very good. But thank yeah. you, Adam, continue. But no, the reason I mention it is because it is primary specific. Yeah. And it, that's why I keep mentioning it is because I, I think... I know, I was only joking, Adam. No, Carry no, on. I'm not, it, what is, you know, yes, there's a lot of secondary voices out there, but actually it feels a little bit like some people in primary want to deny the existence of, um, the, I guess, the sort of group that I would align myself in with in primary which would be sort of a fairly traditionalist approach to primary education um and we are vocal and we have we are out there and 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 it's really important so uh, no i don't necessarily agree that that we can we we need to neatly divide voices in education into primary and secondary and then one can never have insight into the other um 
you know, go and look at a middle school is always a fascinating example, isn't it, of, of what they do there and where they draw their influences from. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I thought. I thought. I think that's why. That's why I earlier asked you about pedagogy. Your pedagogy. You know, mm. being being a primary teacher, you've obviously founded this group, and I completely understand everything you just said. I get it. You know, and, and all that, but there will be many who will say that the so-called in inverted commas chalk and talk way of doing things, you know, sat in rows, uh, you know, direct instruction most of the time or a lot of the time. Um, and, and that kind of approach, if you like, the sort of um, the model that we, we, we see becoming more and more popularized, certainly at secondary level, just simply does not fit in, in a primary context. There will be, <laughs> many who will just say well yeah that's all well and good but it just it doesn't work at primary level i'm not saying i'm one of those people by the way but i'm saying there are many out there who who would say that yeah because they have their own uh, pedagogical uh, opinions about what does work in their classroom through their experience and that's <coughs> that's valid um i would say that i think people often completely misconstrue what traditionalist approaches look like in school because they base them on what they might look like in Primary in um, secondary schools, and in particular in those sort of like big flagship secondary schools that we're probably all sick of talking about. In a primary school, say for example, people talk about explicit instruction. You might have um, year one uh, maths, which is taught using a script, right? And this is a really kind of Engelman's direct instruction idea um, that is there's evidence to back it up as a way of teaching maths, almost like doing sort of the similar way to that we would teach phonics. It's very like scripted and very um very it is direct instruction right and then an hour before that they're making masks using feathers and having the time of their lives half an hour after it they're having their afternoon play and their squash out in the courtyard and riding around on trikes it's it's not the this idea that we are you know grad grindian primary school teachers that that lock our children up in classrooms i i love primary school teaching because it's really fun and because we get to do really fun things with the kids, um, but it's also really important. So we do really important things with the kids as well. Um, it's all about balance. I think Tom Sherrington has this idea about type A and type B, you know, 2080. And maybe in a primary school, it's actually more like, depending and maybe in early years, it's more like 90-10, you know, um, type B. And maybe by the time you get to year six, it's more like up to 80-20. Um, but it's it's a caricature to uh to sort of say that chalk and talk in a primary school either doesn't work or that it is kind of like um yeah i I hope that makes sense yeah i mean just just again this is my non-expert head on here um so asking this but would the argument be though that that with a so-called chalk and talk or direct instruction or, or whatever you want to term it as that attention spans simply go lower and lower the lower the age of the students so therefore the sort of interactions and and engagement and so on that that you might see or expect at at primary at at secondary level just simply aren't possible that's that's why i was asking about your classroom when when you've done this this sort of uh knowledge evidence-informed approach at primary level what does your classroom look like? How do the students respond? What happens when a student? I mean, how, how are they able, particularly in the in the early years or the or the you know key stage one, able to 
go along with that approach with the, yeah. with the sort of so, direct so, instruction approach so i teach in uh, upper key stage two right so that's uh, year five and year six the last couple of years um and i think before when i came to primary i thought yeah sure um attention spans would naturally be lower not necessarily the case by the time they get to key stage two because you it's about that rosenstein thing of making sure that kids have work that is adequately challenging but not impossible so um you can sort of get kids to parrot stuff back to you like you know you could get kids to understand i don't know hegel or something you could get a year two class to to talk about the dialectic but they wouldn't really understand it in any meaningful way that's what i mean by like a knowledge heavy curriculum where you get kids to like learn stuff and, and talk it back to you getting kids to understand a knowledge rich curriculum in primary is uh, um it's what our profession in my opinion is all about because it's about making that knowledge accessible to kids structuring it in a way that makes sense using retrieval practice to get them to remember things it's not all these like who uh, massively uh, a huge melting pot of different ideas and concepts and professional um tools that we have so that they're not just sitting for six hours being lectured to that would be completely mad in a in a primary school setting uh, of any age um so what does it okay so what does it actually look like i see what kind of frustration that you maybe have that i'm not telling you what it actually looks like no no it's not frustration i think you're answering incredibly articulately well and i really appreciate you coming on and i am firing some difficult questions at you here i think i i think it's just i'm trying to get to the bottom of that that very simplistic question of how how do primary school students particularly in early years in key stage one yeah what what I, I, i'm trying to work out the, the the different functions if you like of the evidence-informed approach so yeah. direct instruction um so i guess i guess receiving in, in, knowledge you know all yeah. these different elements how do they fit in at that level so i guess in uh, say for example key state like re you know that's my specialism in key stage one it's far more focused on stories and understanding people because we're building up the knowledge base that they will then key stage two three four five build upon so we're making it age appropriate so we're not getting kids in year one to be able to learn really complex vocabulary or ideas we're telling them stories building up an understanding of the world around them using that analogy that mike hill uses about world building not just in history but in the weird these kids are learning about the whole world in early years you know they are learning about they might have only really seen their flat and our school and and suddenly we're having to teach them about everything every concept every idea that we take for granted the magic of early years is that you're laying the foundations to teach those kids eventually about quantum physics or about um christadelphianism or, or something like that we're laying the intellectual groundwork for that it's not um it's not necessarily direct instruction that's used really sparingly in key stage one you know that might be just an hour a week of of direct instruction maths or it might be just small group teaching the interesting conversation that if we had more time we could talk about would be phonics which is a really structured program that does have a really um a really structured element to it but arguably kids don't necessarily notice because you know they've not had the different experiences that we've had they've not seen the different ways of doing things so if we tell them this is how you learn to read that's the only experience of learning to read that they've had now the thing with phonics is it really is evidence informed in a way that perhaps uh, knowledge rich is kind of a values thing phonics is definitely evidence informed so that that's interesting i i just think that 
yeah, it's I'm interested in, in what it looks like in Key Stage 1 and early years as well. And I think maybe it'd be good to have someone like Julien Grenier come on and talk about it in a bit more detail because they've got a lot more practical experience. Whereas I kind of am sitting in that middle ground having just taught year 5 and 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 and not having taught um, sort of un, under that age group myself personally. One of, one of the things that, again, uh, this was a conversation again on social media on the back of the original letter between uh, a guy called James Hanscombe and uh, Miss Smith who's at Hamish Smith on Twitter the two of them had had a, had a kind of conversation on the back of the, the letter and Miss Smith said what we need is a creative primary curriculum which is create, curated by teachers for their cohorts one which teaches essential skills in meaningful and powerful ways these ways are child-centered to do this, you need flexible, reflective, well-trained and autonomous teachers. All the things that the evidence in full movement on Twitter, supported enthusiastically by, by government and vice versa, have sought to destroy. Um, James Hanscombe responded, I think you're fundamentally wrong in your understanding of the evidence in full movement. The drive has been to create flexible, reflective, well-trained and autonomous teachers exactly as you're wanting. I understand, I understand you think their plan won't work and hasn't worked. What do you think of this idea that the, the creativity and innovation and autonomy of the individual teacher, and this isn't just about primary or, or secondary, this is any teacher at any level, is sort of uh, stifled by centralised messages saying, you, you must do it this way because this is the best way and you must do it all the time. In a way, this is why I've set up a um, this is why I've set up a political pressure group to influence yeah. education policy, because education policy is much more um, specific and much more interesting to me than these questions about these really vague terms like autonomy, freedom, creativity, even knowledge, maybe that argument, I have to be honest with you, does, you know, the argument between those two people, I wouldn't get involved in that on Twitter, because they're talking uh, across each other. Um, I agree with a lot of what both of them are saying, but they're not really engaging in a sort of um, at each other's level. They're never going to come to a an interesting um, synthesis of their ideas because they're just sort of talking at each other their points. And that's totally fine. And that's a lot of what, you know, like ideological, pedagogical conversations have been on Twitter. I've engaged in them myself. So I acknowledge that. Spe policy is about specifics and specifics can be informed by evidence and by that i mean teachers and i mean research and i mean all sorts of different things that's where my interest lies because i have a definition of teacher autonomy that would vary wildly from miss smith's uh, definition of teacher autonomy uh, it, it's just like we just manipulate these terms to mean um, the most sort of charitable to our own exist pre-existing views and that's why i think a lot of conversation on twitter has failed is because we're not capable of having conversations um using these terms that are meaningful and that's a bit of a shame really but it's also realistic someone the other day said to me oh it's really great that um you know now we can have conversations where teachers come to similar outcomes but again 
we're really we need to have a substantial disagreement about specifics we need to have a substantial disagreement about policy so uh, i guess i was a little bit disappointed that the tea haven't put out a position paper of what they want schools specifically to do like we have because i want to have that argument i think it's worth having on specifics on policy on manifestos on what schools mats individual teachers right the way up to the secretary of state are actually going to do um, in terms of reform because there's a huge difference between saying we want teacher autonomy and then saying we're going to give Oak National Academy X million pounds to create, um, you know, and, and they come out with really specific documents that need to be critiqued and that need scrutiny and all these things. That scrutiny and critique is much more interesting than the bigger sort of philosophical arguments about what what it means for a teacher to have autonomy or what it means for a curriculum to be creative because I think they're important arguments. I just I don't think that we're capable of having them in 200 is it 280 characters on twitter in a way that we don't just wind each other up like you know we we clearly do on such a regular basis do you uh, what did i know david blunkett sort of reached out to you yeah what did he what did he say about all this so he started his reply um totally reasonably saying he thought that we misinterpreted um a section of the report um and that you know so initially his response was a little bit um defensive understandably so he's the author of the report and our our open letter was quite critical of it um but once we'd replied back saying you know we're actually we want to positively influence labor policy we're we're we sort of describe ourselves as center left you know the, the 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 group probably aligns mostly with with labor although we do have people who are members of other political parties as part of us um i think he could see that um that there was actually a common ground between what we we're saying and that i think in the future he'll hopefully if he he does any more reports for labor or if he's involved in labor education policy that he will reach out um to teachers uh to get their say on things i essentially what i think if i'm being very frank and and candid what i think happened was that they went slightly beyond their brief so their brief was to create a report about how we can grow productivity in the economy by improving um by addressing skill shortages and by improving skills education and probably that should have been focused on post-16 education um and actually what they ended up with was a much broader sort of treaties on on education than perhaps they were expecting and i would expect that maybe that was a little bit unexpected from the people who the report was aimed at um and that that was sort of then we picked up on that and we created our group the thing is i was probably always going to create this group in the hope of influencing labor education policy and i'd had conversations about the need for a center-left uh, pressure group to kind of push evidence informed ideas on education policy i'd had that conversation literally the day before before i knew this report was being published it just so happened the report was a really good um catalyst for for actually doing something and it just so happened to drop in the middle of half term when i had quite a lot of spare time to sit around making logos on powerpoint and and discord servers and and arguing with people on twitter just before i ask you my last question adam i'm going to um throw this out to everyone at the top of the space there are two links one is about being a teacher's talk radio host so if you'd like to interview interesting people like adam um on the regular then do get in touch with us 
um, just have a look at the link which is pinned um, uh, into the space. Um, the second one is uh, one of our partners, which is Witherslap Group, again, who are a provider of specialist education and care. They've got a neurodiversity conference coming up, which you're invited to. If you click the link at the top of the space, you can register for that and get involved. Um, Adam, my final question was going to be about what the future is for the campaign for evidence-informed teaching. You've got over 4,000 followers on Twitter already. You've got lots and lots of members in, in your sort of um, WhatsApp community group or, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what you're calling that. Are you calling that the Cobra group or something? I don't know. <laughs> but, but you've got a lot of members. So what's the plan now? Because you obviously didn't expect to sort of be – I mean, I was going to ask you as well on a personal level. How have you sort of found the attention? Has anything upset you? Is it, or have you just been fully inspired by the whole thing? No, I've loved it. I've loved it. I'm a massive narcissist. So to be the center of attention is, is absolutely the, my dream half term. Um, yeah. No, I honestly like, yeah, it did. It, it, it more upset me because of some of the hypocrisy that lay behind it and the bad faith. No one, I would have been upset if there were, if people came at me and with arguments that sort of aligned with my own kind of self criticisms. Um, whereas it was mostly just stuff that was like really transparently kind of like, well, I know who I vote for. I know what political party I've been a member of, blah, blah, blah. So it didn't really, none of that massively um, bothered me. It was quite quite funny in a way to sort of see see how transparent it all was. Um, what's next for the group? So it's really exciting. I'm genuinely buzzing because I've always kind of wanted to do something in this space of like policy. It's always been my kind of um, big side interest, but I've always felt, you know that that imposter syndrome of who am I? I'm just just a guy, whatever. And actually, it turns out, you know, there's uh, what's amazing is this community of teachers we've got. You know, on Discord, we're, we're talking about really incredible stuff. Um, well, really incredible stuff. We're talking about curriculum, but I personally find it really incredible because I'm a nerd. Um, and so, what we're doing at the moment is we are going to create a steering committee um, that will have um, sort of people who are going to be uh, out of the the larger group of supporters people who are going to be kind of maybe spokespeople or who are going to write blogs or who are going to be more heavily involved in, in this. Um, we're hoping to talk. I still really want to talk to Bridget Phillipson and the labor education team. Um, we haven't heard from them yet, which is a little bit disappointing given how explicitly we've tried to reach out to them, but I'm hoping that, you know, she's been in, in Estonia today. Um, so maybe when she gets back from Estonia, we, we will hear from, from her or her team. So we'd love to be involved in that conversation alongside all the other sort of policy makers and stakeholders in labor and then we're also hopefully going to be publishing some more um like uh well researched and well referenced uh policy papers so one is in the works on curriculum at the moment which lays out kind of what our view is on curriculum but also really well researched you know really well um referenced so that we can say to people if you're interested in making policy on curriculum here is what a group of x hundred teachers says is a really good idea and if you want to have a conversation with some teachers about it we can send some teachers your way to do that because in a way like in the the real politique um it's hard for someone like the secretary of state for education to to speak to teachers because what do you do when it was michael gove he was very famous for just sort of speaking to the same group of teachers from edu twitter mm. um and he was criticized a lot for it and so i guess very cynically we would just quite like to be um, a group of teachers <laughs> that um, policymakers talk to. So that's what we're putting ourselves forward as. We're saying, you know, we feel like we're 
fairly well informed that we'd love to have a conversation with you about that we're passionate about good policy that we're passionate about what we do that we love our job that we love teaching we love education so here we are come talk to us we're here um do you think do you think there's a danger i mean a lot of the the people sort of on the other side of the fence on this who who don't sort of back the the objectives of of the group would say that any criticism of labor let's say or or certainly strong criticism of of labor's future education policies or future things is is sort of if if you are all center left or on the left do you do you think oh this might damage labor or this might damage their chances and so on that that's like if you give that thought more than five seconds of thought you'll see how massively disingenuous it is for two reasons one we want labor to have a good education policy because one cynically we think they're going to be in power in two years time and two most of us will vote for them and we want to be able to vote for a policy that we agree in and education is important to all of us two what kind of semi and you know if we're talking really politics like the people who haven't decided who they're voting for tend to be the less informed side of of voters they're people who make their decisions kind of nearer the time people who might be influenced by the media or people who might be influenced by um by friends and things like that are they really logging on to twitter and saying my god the center for the the campaign for evidence-informed teaching says that labor's education policy is is deficient I I will be casting my vote for the Conservatives at the next. You know, it, it, how many how many uh, people are we going to sway? Most teachers already know who they're going to vote for, and the kind of people who um who will who don't know who they're going to vote for, they're not going to be influenced by a position paper published by the Campaign for Evidence Informed Teaching on some niche corner of Twitter. Um, we're not influential in the wider political sphere. We're just hoping to be influential in the fairly narrow sphere of uh, of, of centre-left uh, education policy. Got you. I mean, Adam, that, you, I've, I'm sorry for raising your blood pressure. Because, um, <laughs> certainly that wasn't my intention at no, all. No, um, I'm just a very passionate person. You're a passionate man, and so am I, and I, I like it. I like it. Um, and actually, I think, you know, fair play to you for you know the 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 uh you know wh- whether people agree or disagree i don't think anybody can question sort of the uh the intention the you know the the the, the i was going to say quality i don't mean the word quality i'm trying to think of the right thing to to express your the way in which you you have managed to grow this group it just it also shows the power of social media as well mm. i mean it really is remarkable um and it, i would it couldn't, love... have, it, it couldn't have happened um, I think it's really interesting listening to stories of people who were involved in these kind of projects before social media because this happened when I say it happened overnight I mean we got a thousand followers between lunchtime and dinner time it, it's been remarkable like it's been really remarkable and if we end up having any kind of influence on labor policy it'll be a real show that edgy twitter is actually important like i don't mean important in the sense of self-important i just mean that it's been influential on the teaching profession even though as we all know and as people constantly say what it's probably like five percent of teachers who are actually on twitter but it is still representative of teachers and i think it still can be a real force for good and that's kind of where I am now at this stage, maybe five days out from or less than from from when we started, is I just feel tr- like tremendously positive 
about the entire experience. And when I say to people, oh, right, you disagree, go and start your own pressure group. Yes, I'm being a sarcastic so-and-so. But they did, though, Adam. They did start one. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm sure they're finding it to be an incredibly positive experience as well. It's it's honestly been brilliant, and I love it. And, um, yeah, it's great, because I get to nerd out about education policy. It turns out there's um, several thousand people who are interested in it as well, which is really nice. Adam, thanks ever so much for your time. Uh, Thanks, everyone, as well, for tuning in, Uh, people who've been here through the whole thing, Shannon, Chris, uh, Neil, Jonathan, Nikki, Michael, uh, Tom, James, Charlotte, Mr. B, who regularly listens to stuff. Thank you to all of you guys. And, uh, yeah, we'll we'll be back again uh, in a week's time on Monday. Um, So, Adam, thanks ever so much for your time. And, uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Thanks. And uh, and always remember, there are many podcasts available, Adam. So many podcasts. (laughs) We should have a whole separate show where I just recommend 50 different education podcasts I listen to. Uh, including Teacher Talk Radio, which is brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Uh, all right. Take care, Adam. All right. And, Cheers, uh, Tom. Good later. to see you. Thanks. Bye bye. That was Adam. And thanks very much to Adam for coming on. If anyone wants to call in now and share their opinion to finish off just for the last minute, um, I'm sure Nathan has to go. He's been kindly adminning. But if anybody else wants to share an opinion, a different opinion, or view, you've got 30 seconds starting now. If not, we are going and we'll be back next week uh, same time 7.30 and do listen to more Teach Talk radio shows there's tons more coming up uh, later on in the week so we will see you all very soon take care goodbye you've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio